And if you're a Canadian, a belated Happy Canada Day to you all. It is, a, it is a privilege to live in this country. And if you have never traveled outside, or if you have never come from a country other than Canada, then you can take my word that it is a blessing to live in this country. So be thankful to God that we have this country that he's placed us in. If, he were, if you're born here, consider that a special favor that God has bestowed upon you. So I'm going to do something that we don't do very often. We're going to pray for our political leaders. You know, growing up in an Anglican church in, pa- in Pakistan, it was a standard practice for the church to pray week after week for the leadership. And this was all Muslim leadership. So today we're going to pray for our leaders. And I'm not asking you to agree with their policies. I'm not asking you to agree with what they stand for. I'm just asking you to acknowledge that they are there because God has placed them there. And as church, the most significant political involvement we can have is on our knees before God for our leaders. So will you please pray with me as we pray for our country and for our leaders. Heavenly Father, it is truly a privilege that you have placed us in this country, Canada. And God, it is a blessing that we can live in peace, we can live in security. And as Christians, God, we can come to a building like this and worship you and praise you. We can carry our Bibles, we can read our Bibles, and God, we can do that in freedom without any fear of any kind of retaliation at all. God, we can hold Bible studies in our group. We can walk into a bookstore and look at resources galore because you have made it possible for us to be within the borders of this country. And God, we just want to pray to you for the leadership that you've placed in this country. We pray to you right from our federal government. We pray for Prime Minister Stephen Harper and all the MPs that sit in the parliament offices. We pray to you for the leaders of our opposition parties, Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Mulcair. And God, we pray for a special hand of wisdom on each of these men and women who are leading this country. And God, we don't know if they believe in you, if they even acknowledge that you exist, but we know, God, that you direct people to accomplish your purposes. And God, just as you had your hand on leaders and pharaohs of the past, rulers and kings in the ancient times, we pray to you for the leadership of the present day. And we pray, God, for your wisdom and your hand to guide them. We pray the same for the leadership for this province, for our premier, for the opposition leaders, and for the civic leadership as well, for our mayor, and for the council that works with him to bring peace and order to this city. And God, most of all, we pray to you for every person who calls this country home. And we pray, God, that your spirit will move and that your purpose and will will be done within the borders of this country. We thank you once again for this honor and this privilege that you have given us to be called Canadians. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to thank Mel for putting that, uh, that hymn right at the beginning, How Great Thou Art. I don't know if I've told you this story before, but my dad was uh, born and raised in Pakistan, and uh, he had a huge influence of Western missionaries in his life, in the life of my families. And uh, they were well-versed in these old English hymns. 
And this is one of my dad's favorite hymns. I grew up listening to him in the morning as I was getting ready for school. He'll be walking around the house singing these English hymns. And so when, after being away from home, after being away from him for almost 11 years, they came to, to Thunder Bay for our wedding. And after the wedding, they came to our church here in Winnipeg, to Windsor Park Baptist Church. He was standing over beside me, and Janet was over to the side. And my dad is a very soft-spoken man. He, he speaks very softly. He's very gentle. He doesn't speak often. So as this hymn came on, there was a transformation And when you get to the part where it says, how great thou art, you could feel that it was coming from his core, that he was singing with all his might to his God. And every time, every single time we sing this hymn, it always brings tears to my eyes. Because I remember when I was a baby and a boy and a young adult growing up and listening to my dad, and then 30 years later listening to him again, And a few years ago when they were here listening to him again sing that hymn with the same fervor, with the same spirit. So thanks, Mel, for for bringing me to tears before we started. (laughs) Well, we're we're in the Gospel of Mark, and we've been journeying through it for a while. And now we're getting into chapter 14. We're starting the last three chapters of this Gospel, almost to the end. The climax, if you will, is shaping up. Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection are about to happen. We're going to read this account of the anointing of Jesus that happens at Bethany by a woman. And while we read that, I'm going to ask you to stand with me and turn to the Gospel of Mark in chapter 14. I'm going to be reading from the NIV, the 1984 version, and I wanted to clarify that because NIV just released a newer version in 2011, and that version is gender neutralized, if you will. So I just want to make sure that if you have one of those versions, it's not going to have the same language, most likely, that I'll be reading from and that our pew Bibles will, be, uh, will have in them. Mark chapter 14, verses 1 to 11. Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. 
May God bless his word. You may be seated. You know, just in chapter 11, we read that Jesus entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And he's proclaimed as a king. He's proclaimed as a Messiah, as a deliverer. And it's only three chapters later, and we've only covered about three days of that last week before the Passover. And that tells you the significance of the events that the gospel writers are placing on that last week and everything that occurs in that last week. We've also witnessed in the last two chapters that Jesus has been proclaiming his death on the cross and his resurrection. But the disciples, many of them, if not all of them, are somehow resistant to accepting this idea that Jesus is going to die. Somehow it seems that they have ears, but they're not hearing what Jesus is saying to them. This morning we're going to look at one more evidence, if you will, of the fact that Jesus is God's chosen Messiah. He was the one that God had set aside from the beginning to be the sacrifice that mankind needed for a complete reconciliation with God. Now the account that we read is one of four accounts that are recorded in the Gospels. And there are three different incidents actually where Jesus is anointed by a woman with a perfume. The first event is actually written in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. You may not be able to read this, so you can turn with me to your Bibles, but I'll just read this for you. The first one occurs where one of the Pharisees invites Jesus to his house, and this is how Luke records it. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, so he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. So this is the first incident where we see Jesus being anointed. There is no timeline given for this event, but you can assume that it is earlier on in the ministry of Jesus Christ where he's been established as a rabbi, as a teacher, and has a following. And because of his teaching, people are beginning to sense that he may be the Messiah or he may certainly be worthy of worship. And so that's what this woman does. The second account of an anointing is written in the Gospel of John. And the John account is rather interesting because you can see, as we read it, you can see his personal bias against Judas Iscariot coming through. You'll see how he talks about Judas Iscariot. And you have to remember that he wrote it long after Judas had betrayed Jesus Christ and we knew what his fate had been. So John, who was the disciple that Jesus loved, cannot contain how he feels about Judas. So this is what he writes. John chapter 12, verses, starting at verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard and expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. 
He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. So you see the first distinction between those two accounts is that the woman in the first account is a sinful woman. That's how she's classified. In the second account, we actually get an identity, and it's Mary. Two separate incidents. The third incident is exactly the same as what we just read, and it's recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 26, verses 6 to 13. And it is almost a word-for-word account of what we have just read in the Gospel of Mark. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So it's almost exactly word for word for what Mark records. And you can see that there are three separate incidents where Jesus is anointed with perfume, with an expensive perfume. Now for the disciples, the anointing, would not have been out of the ordinary. All the Jews knew, all the Israelites knew, that anointing was one way that God would appoint people to a particular position. And while in the Old Testament, when the institution of anointing was was set up, God would anoint craftsmen as they were working on on, uh, the temple, for example. Or in one case, Jacob anointed a pillar of rocks where he struggled with God. So you see the, the concept of anointing being part of Israel's history for a long time. But there were three institutions, three offices in Israel where the anointing was a mandatory requirement. It, and it was mandatory because God wanted to communicate that these men were set aside by him for a specific purpose. First of those offices was the office of a prophet. You could not just proclaim yourself to be a prophet because if you did so, God would call you out as a false prophet. And the reason for that was because you had not received the anointing that was a mandatory requirement. The, the physical anointing, the pouring of oil, was an outward symbol of the fact that God had set a person aside. And so, for example, we see in case of Elisha in 1 Kings chapter 19 and six, verse 16, we read that God instructed Elijah to anoint Elisha so that he could be the divine prophet that God had set aside for the nation of Israel. So the first office where the anointing was a mandatory requirement was that of the prophets. The second office was that of the priests. When God set up the temple and he set up the, priest, uh, the order of the priesthood, one of the requirements was that the priests were to be anointed because, before they could serve before the Lord. In Exodus chapter 40, verses 12 to 15, the Lord is giving this instruction to Moses where he says, Bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance to the tent of meeting and wash them with water. 
Then dress Aaron in the sacred garments, anoint him, and consecrate him. And the same is to be done for Aaron's son. So if you were chosen to be a priest, you were anointed to signify to everyone around you that God had placed that responsibility upon you. The last office where the anointing was a requirement was that of the kings. When kings in Israel were established, they were anointed. Now some of you historians might argue and say, well, what about the judges? Well, the judges were done when the kings started. So really, the authority to lead Israel was passed on from the judges onto the kings. And the big difference between the judges and the kings is that the judges were more local and the kings were for the entire nation. So the kings were also anointed as David was anointed. And it's interesting that in David's case, he was anointed three separate times as king. So the three offices that were the cornerstone in Israel's social structure all require the anointing. And so I don't think it is by sheer chance that the New Testament records three separate anointings for Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the last messenger from God. He is the one who fulfills all messages that the prophets brought on how man could be reconciled with God. There is no one else after him who will bring a message from God. He is the last messenger that God sent. The Son came down to complete the message of the Father. He is also our high priest, as the Bible tells us. And of course we know that he is the king of kings. So how could the disciples, we wonder, be so thick? How could they not see this unfolding right before their eyes? They were Jews. They had the context. They had the history. And yet they see Jesus anointed three times, and yet they don't get it. And you know, before we become too harsh on the disciples, I don't think we are that different from their response. I don't think that we are any different in how we respond to Jesus. We have the benefit of history on our side. We have the benefit of the Holy Spirit explaining all these things to us. And yet, in our multi-translation Bible world, as Bible-going, Bible-reading church goers, we still fail to see Jesus as the Savior. We still fail to see Him as the final messenger from God. We still fail to see him as the high priest and as our king of kings. So really, in the 21st century, we are no different in some cases than the first century fishermen who repeatedly failed to see Jesus for who he really was. Now, how can we be certain that Jesus is the anointed one? Because, of course, if we believe that he is a savior, then there's got to be some kind of evidence. Well, if you start right from the beginning, right from the Old Testament, from Genesis on, there are prophecies that have been placed throughout the entire Old Testament. Prophecies that were written over a thousand years. Prophecies that were written by men who were separated by time and space, time and geography. Prophecies that on their own may not mean much but are all a part of the same thread. 
throughout the history of humanity. These are prophecies that God had placed on the highway to eternity as placeholders, as, as markers, as signposts, so that when we see them, we know without a doubt that Jesus Christ will fulfill them. And he is the only one who has fulfilled these prophecies. According to one count, there are 324 prophecies in the Old Testament that speak of Jesus' first coming and what will happen to him when he arrives. These prophecies were written by men who did not have a clue what the other men had wrote. In many instances, they were separated and did not know the context of what they were writing. Just imagine if today I stand here and tell you that in 700 years from today, the Prime Minister of Canada will be born in a tiny town called Wawa. Exactly. That would be the response. In fact, some of you would say, can anything good ever come out of Wawa? Which is exactly what they said when Micah said that he would be born in Bethlehem. Or, if I stood here and said, in a thousand years, this prime minister, this leader, will suffer death in this manner. You would scoff at me. You see, the prophecy is not as much about what is said, but it is all about what is fulfilled. So in the context of their times, their words meant nothing. But as each of these prophecies was fulfilled, then people started to notice that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. 700 years before Jesus' birth, Micah proclaimed where he was going to be born. A thousand years before Jesus was born, David writes and tells us how he is going to suffer and die. And here's a few more. Just, uh, I won't go through all 324 of them, but here's a few more. Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem, Micah chapter 4. This is fulfilled in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, John 7, 42, Luke 2 and 2, 47. Messiah is to be preceded by a messenger, proclaimed in Isaiah 43 and Malachi 3, 1, fulfilled in Matthew 3, 1, 3, 11, 10, John 1, 23, Luke 1, 17. Messiah is to enter Jerusalem on a donkey, proclaimed in Zechariah 9, 9, and fulfilled in Luke 35, 37, and Matthew 21, 6 to 11. He would be betrayed by a friend, Psalms 41, 9, fulfilled in Matthew 26, 49. He would be sold for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12, fulfilled in Matthew 26, 15. His betrayal money will be cast to the floor of the temple, Zechariah 11:13, Matthew 27:5. Betrayal money will be used to buy the potter's field, Zechariah 11:13, fulfilled in Matthew 27:7. Forsaken and deserted by his disciples, Zechariah 13:7, fulfilled in Mark 14:50. He would be accused by false witnesses, Psalms 35:11, fulfilled in Matthew 26 verses 59 and 60. He will be silent before his accusers. Isaiah 53, 7, fulfilled in Matthew 27, 12. He will be wounded and bruised. Isaiah 53, 5, fulfilled in Matthew 27, 26. He would be hated without a cause, fulfilled in John 15, 25, and proclaimed in Psalm 69, 4. He would be struck upon and spat upon. Isaiah 56, and fulfilled in Matthew 26, 67. He would be mocked, ridiculed, and rejected. Isaiah 53, 3, fulfilled in Matthew 27, 27 to 31, and John 7, 5, and 48. He would collapse from weakness. Psalms 109, 24, and 25, fulfilled in Luke 23, 26. He would be taunted. Psalms 22, 6 to 8, 
fulfilled in Matthew 27, 39 to 43. People will shake their hands at him. Psalms 109, 25, fulfilled in Matthew 27, 39. People will stare at him. Psalms 22, 17, fulfilled in Luke 23, 35. He would be executed among sinners and thieves. Isaiah 53, 12, fulfilled in Matthew 27, 38. His hands and feet will be pierced. Psalms 22, 16, fulfilled in Luke 23, 33. He will pray for his persecutors. Isaiah 53, 12, Luke 23, 34. His friends and family will stand far off and watch. Psalms 38, 11, fulfilled in 23, 49. His garments will be divided and won by the casting of lots. Psalm 22, 18, fulfilled in John 19, 23 and 24. He will thirst. Psalm 69, 21, fulfilled in John 19, 28. He will be given gall and vinegar. Psalm 69, 21, fulfilled in Matthew 27, 34. He will commit himself to God. Psalms 31, 5, fulfilled in Luke 23, 46. His bones will be left unbroken. Psalms 34, 20, fulfilled in John 19, 33. His heart will rupture. Psalm 22, 14, fulfilled in John 19, 34. His side will be pierced. Zechariah 12, 10, John 19, 34. Messiah will be executed by crucifixion as a thief. Psalm 22, 16, Zechariah 12, 10. Isaiah 53, 5, 12, and fulfilled in Luke 23, 33. John 20, 25. Matthew 27, 38. Mark 15, 27, and 28. Darkness will come over the land at midday. Amos chapter 8, verse 9, fulfilled in Matthew 27, 45. He will be buried in a rich man's tomb. Isaiah 53, 9, fulfilled in Matthew 27, 57 to 60. He will be raised from the dead. Psalm 16, 10, and fulfilled in Acts 2, 31. He will ascend to heaven. Psalm 68, 18, fulfilled in Acts 1, 9. And he will be seated at the right hand of God in full majesty and authority. Psalms 110, verse 11, and fulfilled in Hebrews 1, 3. And that's just 33 prophecies. Not 234. What are the odds that something like this could actually happen in one person? Well, I'm not a statistician or a big-time mathematician, so some really smart people have done the math. The probability that one of those prophecies would come true about the Messiah being born in Bethlehem is one in 300,000. That's not bad. That's better than uh, winning a lottery, for example. If you take the next step, with each subsequent prophecy being fulfilled in one person, the probability decreases exponentially. So when we get to eight messianic prophecies, the probability of all eight being fulfilled by one person goes down to one in a really big number, <laughs> followed by 17 zeros. I think it's quadrillion. Some scientists can probably tell you exactly what the name of that number is. If you were to take 48 prophecies out of the 234 of one man fulfilling these prophecies, it comes like this. So 48 messianic prophecies, the chances of one person meeting those is one in... Made it faster. 
Exactly. <laughs> I don't even know what you call that number. But there are 157 zeros in that number. And any scientist or statistician would tell you that once you hit the 50th zero, the chances of any event occurring as a random event are practically impossible. And that's just 48 prophecies. There is evidence, if you want it, that tells you that Jesus Christ is the chosen, anointed Messiah. Because there is only one man in all of humanity, in all of our history, who has met every single one of those prophecies. It is easy to control the prophecies, perhaps, that you can control, that you can manipulate. But how do you manage where you're going to be born? Or the reaction of people to you? How do you get the Roman soldiers to spit upon you? How do you get the soldiers who are sitting at the bottom of the cross, at the foot of the cross, to cast lots for your clothes? And so the prophecies are not just what Jesus could control himself, but it involved a lot of people outside the circle. There is only one Savior. He is our King, He is our High Priest, and He is the true Savior, and His name is Jesus Christ. Well, we're, we have the benefit of history on our side, and so the only response we can have is to truly acknowledge that he is the real Messiah. You know the response that we see this woman has in the Gospel of Mark is kind of the response we want to have. But there is a second group of people in this story who have a completely different response. The disciples. And as John mentions, Judas Iscariot. They see the, the act of devotion that this, this woman has to Jesus Christ and their first response is to pull out their calculators and figure out how much money has been wasted. They're trying to figure out how much good they can do for the poor in the world. And those are all noble things. Shouldn't the church think about what we can do for the poor? We should be doing that. So really, what they're asking for or what they're questioning is not out of line with what happens at many finance meetings. I'm not sure if it happens here, but at churches around the world where you sit down and you count pennies on what's being sent to outreach and what's being done for missions and how much are we spending on helping the poor. Their action, their question is a noble one, but I believe their motive is not. Their motive is focused on everything outside the person of Jesus Christ. They're looking at everything outside their relationship with Jesus Christ. And I believe it's because they still, at this point, have not come to recognize that He is their Savior. They are still thinking of a kingdom, perhaps. They are still not accepting the fact that He's going to be crucified and raised. And so their whole focus is on what's going to happen around them. John is a little more harsh. He even questions Judas's 
intentions on why he wants the money in the money bag because apparently Judas was a thief and took money when he wanted fruit from the money bag. You know, there are many churches who lose sight of their relationship with Jesus Christ and become so social-centered that they lose their salt. And I pray that that will never be the case for this church, that we will always keep our relationship with Jesus Christ at the forefront of everything we do. And out of that relationship with Jesus Christ comes the desire and the actions to help others, but not at the expense of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so Jesus rebukes them, and he elevates the actions of this woman. Why are the actions of this woman recorded for posterity? And why isn't she even given a name? Wouldn't it be great to have a name associated with this person? I'm thankful that her name is not there. Because in some sense, she represents every person, every believer, who places what's valuable to them at the feet of Jesus Christ and submits everything wholeheartedly to him. You see, the alabaster jar that's been referenced many times was not just any jar. The alabaster jars were used because they would retain the texture and the scent and the quality of whatever liquid you would put into it. And so in many cases, families will have these alabaster jars as heirlooms that mothers would pass on to their daughters on their wedding days. So it will become a sentimental element because you could trace the history. My grandma got this jar of alabaster with the pure nard perfume when she got married, and then she gave it to my mom, and I got it from her. So there was a lot of sentimental value associated with these perfumes. But there was also a monetary value because this, this is true. This was a very expensive perfume. And it was expensive because nard was actually a flower that grew, or the perfume was extracted from a flower that grows at the mountains, on the mountains of Himalayan range. So this would be in India where the perfume would be prepared and then it would be exported out to the Middle East and by the time it got there, it was a very, very expensive product to have. And so there is a sentimental value that this woman has to this particular ointment, but there is also a monetary value. And what she does is she brings it to Jesus and she breaks the jar and she places it on his head. She anoints him as the Lord and Savior. Why did she break the jar? If it was that much, that much valuable, why didn't she keep it? Well, there's, there's two explanations, historical explanations, if you will. One explanation is that when you had a guest at home, a valuable guest, a highly valued guest, you would break the utensils that they would use so that no one else could ever use them again. And so she breaks this jar because she does not want this jar to contain the ointment for anyone else other than the person that she has just poured it upon. There was a second explanation, and that's more in line with what Jesus said about his burial. When a dead body was prepared for burial, and all the ointments and oils and perfumes were rubbed onto it, the jars that these ointments would come in were broken and placed in the tomb with the dead body. And so Jesus proclaims once again his death, that this woman is in fact preparing me for my burial. 
once again, Jesus tells his disciples that his time is coming. She placed everything that she had of value, sentimental, monetary, placed it at Jesus' feet in utter devotion. And you know, I think this morning I can tell you that I can do the same thing. I love Jesus so much that I will give him everything. Well, except maybe my commander data action figure. It's not a doll, it's an action figure. <laughs> or maybe my job. I love him so much that I can give him everything except my job. Or maybe I love him so much that I can give him everything except my wife and kids. I don't know what that is for you. I don't know what it is that you can complete that sentence with. Is it your job? Is it your action figures? Is it your family, your marriage, your spouse? But the only true response that we can have when we come face to face with Jesus as our Savior is to place everything that is worth anything to us at His feet and exalt Him and worship Him and hold Him up as our Savior. We're going to enter into a time of prayer as we come to the end of our service. We're going to take a moment to pray in silence. And I just pray that the Lord will lead you to point out to you what, what it is that you're holding on to, what it is that you're hanging on to, that you need to place at God's feet today. What is it that is more valuable to you than Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've, you've spoken to us this morning. I know you have to me. God, we just, want to, we just want to be in your presence in complete submission. Just asking you, God, what is it? What is it in our lives that is a hindrance between you and us? What do we carry with us that is more valuable to us than you? And God, I pray that this morning we will have a true sense that you are the only person who matters. You are the only relationship that we need to truly invest in. You are the only Savior that we can ever have. And there is nothing, nothing in our lives, God, that is worth more than you. And so, God, I pray this morning for each person present that as you touch their hearts and bring to surface things that we must learn to let go, that you will give us the courage to do that, to let go of what we think matters to us. And God, I pray that with that, you will give us a new sense of a relationship with you so that we will be wholly and completely and fully devoted to you. 
Let us not be just Bible-carrying churchgoers, but true disciples of Jesus Christ. God, I pray to you for everyone who's here today. In Jesus' name, amen. May be dismissed.